Hello and welcome to the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. Today's episode will be another one on corruption and conspiracy. In the previous episode, I focused specifically on quotes and excerpts with just a little bit of commentary that were directly from the sources, from presidents and influential leaders and people like Darwin and Galton and all these types of folks. And so this time, I am just going to get into more narrative information rather than reading a bunch of quotes and excerpts. But hopefully that was something that was helpful for you guys. I really did enjoy that last episode a lot. It's it's really, I guess, fun, for lack of a better word, to uh, hear what people say in their own words historically and be able to apply that to the context and in the context of the types of things we're talking about on this podcast. So today's episode, again, we'll get more into the story of the people and groups that are behind the scenes that are doing these things. So when you go back to last episode, there were many quotes from people talking about how the the U.S. government is really run from behind the scenes by a secret cabal or by the money trust or by oligarchs or whatever it was, the, the New World Order. There are all these different phrases. And They're all referring to uh, people behind the scenes that are influential, wealthy, powerful, well-connected, and they're the ones that are really steering things. And so I I think I made that very clear in the last episode with the quotes from people that should be very highly regarded and trustworthy. Heck, even Woodrow Wilson, who is someone that I would rate very low on my list of people that I like in history, and he did horrible things and is involved in a lot of this stuff. But even he called out this fact that was really going on even in his own administration. And so... Yes, you go from him to Kennedy to, I think it went all the way back to Washington even, talking about the Illuminati having interests and influence, so it goes way back. But yes, that was last episode. The episode before that was about the ideologies of these elites, for lack of a better term, and talking about specifically mostly eugenics, but also getting into transhumanism and cybernetics and technocracy and these types of things. So by now, you should have a good feel for what these topics are, what these ideologies are, what these goals are. You should, that was from two episodes ago, you should have a good feel for the historical accuracy and the breadth of this information and this type of topic that would have been the previous episode. And now you should be familiar with some specific names and groups and how they fit in and tie in from this episode. And then in the next episode next week, I'm going to apply this stuff and talk about historical events, mainly war and false flags, and how they are directly connected to all these things, the ideologies, the people, Um, The quotes that I read, all of these things, they all tie together. So again, the point of these few episodes are to step back, take a macro view, and see how all these things connect. So with that being said, I will start the episode now. Since I have talked about Plato so much throughout the course of this podcast, I am not going to start with Plato, even though all things seem to lead back there. Instead, I am going to start with the Rothschilds. This is a common name that comes up when you get into the realm of conspiracy and corruption, and rightfully so. There is a lot to be said of 
this family. And so to give you just a little bit of background and history, the Rothschilds early on were bankers, mainly to kings and queens. As they grew in wealth and influence, different family members went to different major cities throughout Europe and started branches there. The Rothschilds had built up a very effective and very fast-acting intelligence network throughout Europe because they had these banking houses in these different areas. They needed to send and receive money. They needed to send and receive information and keep in touch with each other. And this really benefited them for the next part that I'll only briefly cover, but I've talked about before, and you can look up for more information. But the Battle of Waterloo was about to take place And everybody thought that the British were going to lose to the French, who was being led by Napoleon. And this was the general sentiment. People were worried about this. And some information leaked out right around the same time that the battle would have and should have concluded, but information had not reached already from official sources. But there was some information that leaked out that the British did, in fact, lose, that Napoleon was coming, and obviously people were pretty freaked out. And the Rothschilds were there to take advantage. Some believe that the Rothschilds were the ones that spread the rumor to begin with. But what happened was that everybody started selling off all their stocks and things of that nature, their investments, and as they did, the prices came down to pennies on the dollar. And then what happened was, it is said, that the Rothschilds did get word through their highly efficient network that, in fact, the British had won. And again, some believe that they got this information first, leaked out the opposite information that Napoleon won so that prices would tank and they could buy up before the official information came in. But that is not officially confirmed, but probably likely similar to the, was it the Panic of 1903, I believe it was, that kind of started the the desire of the public for a regulated monetary system in America, hence the Federal Reserve similar model that happened here. And when prices were at rock bottom, pennies on the dollar, Rothschild did have this information at that point and bought up everything he could, again, at pennies on the dollar. Then, shortly after this happened, the official information came out that, in fact, the British had won, that Napoleon had been defeated. And not only did prices skyrocket back up to their original price, they even went beyond their original price. So you can imagine, I bet, the wealth that was accumulated in that one situation. And they were already quite wealthy. They were already the bankers of kings and queens and uh, different lands throughout Europe. And so this was a pretty big deal. Uh, Another example would be that the French government was not very fond of the Rothschilds for multiple reasons. And there was an interesting event that happened because the French would not let the Rothschilds open a branch. And if they did, they wouldn't use that branch in any official governmental capacity. Whereas that was kind of the point of the Rothschild setup is that they would fund wars, they would fund royalty, and that's what they did. That was their specialty. And it was extremely lucrative and benefited them in very many ways. 
So the French would not allow this. The French royalty did not want them around. Well, what happened was that a few of the Rothschilds ended up buying up French government bonds, and they would buy them up slowly and kind of undercover, under the radar, and it wasn't realized how much they were actually buying until the time that they had bought up enough that they threatened the French and ended up selling off all these French bonds and completely tanked them and tanked the market. And the French royalty realized how much power the Rothschilds really did have and how much influence they had and that they could basically totally ruin them. And so the French government ended up letting them in and they officially started using the Rothschilds on an official governmental capacity at that point. That was somewhere around 1818, which would have been after the Battle of Waterloo, which was somewhere around, well, maybe just, yeah, just just after. I think Waterloo was 1815, maybe, somewhere around there. And uh, the French ordeal was around 1818, so a few years later. Now, the next issue that I'll bring up, and I'm just going to touch on some random little highlights here uh, and some connections that should become apparent as we go through. So when the Rothschilds bought up a lot of this stock uh, around the time of the Battle of Waterloo, the main thing they bought up was Bank of England stock. And I forget the term of what that was called at the time, but it's pretty much stock in the Bank of England. And they bought up most of it, way over 50%. And so they pretty much ran the Bank of England at that point, and arguably long after. The Bank of England was the entity that mostly funded the American colonies. So they set up America, and even when America revolted, there were still loans that were due back to, essentially, the Rothschilds. So that is another interesting bit there. Uh, Coming up after the revolt from the British In America, the Rothschild sent Solomon D. Rothschild over to America. He took a trip. This was before the Civil War and basically was taking stock of the situation, what was going on. How could they take advantage and influence things? And he wrote back and actually have the letters. I think it's a casual view of America, I believe, by Solomon D. Rothschild. But uh, what he talked about was that you had these two groups, the North and the South, that were headed right for each other like two steaming locomotives and basically war was going to break out and so the Rothschilds uh, decided to do different things and fund different sides and it's not really this isn't the place to get into all that but they were involved they were checking out the situation but eventually Solomon D. Rothschild died young and so he probably was the pick and would have been the one who would have started up the branch in America early on, probably right after the Civil War, probably a very similar model where they would get the war going, uh, probably fund the opposite side, which was the case. They were funding the Confederates at first. And then once the war was very heated and everything was pennies on the dollar, buy it all up and then either pull out your resources from the one side or then put some into the other or push things in one direction or another, maybe an allying nation from across the sea, whatever they want to do to wrap up the war real quick so that their uh, shares and their interests that they bought for pennies on the dollar are now worth way more than pennies. And that was probably the plan and arguably that could have happened in other means without Solomon Rothschild, but that was kind of the situation. And 
uh, after the Civil War, you had the Rothschilds funding many other names that do come up a lot, names like J.P. Morgan and or David Rockefeller and Cecil Rhodes, and it goes on and on. The Chase Manhattan Bank had strong ties to Roth- Rothschilds, the Warburgs, uh, Vander, was it Vanderlip? And they're just, it goes on and on. But all these names are names that come up a lot in this space. And a lot of them got their original funding from none other than the Rothschilds. Another interesting area that, again, I'm not going to go into any depth in, but uh, area that the Rothschilds are very interested in has always been the Golan Heights and this battle between Palestine and Israel. You had the Roth. The Rothschild Trust was colonizing Palestine way back in 1894. And uh, around this time, Edmund D. Rothschild attempted to colonize the Golan Heights. And this was unsuccessful. It got stopped by the Arabs and the Ottoman Empire. Now, take note of these dates, 1894. If you remember when World War I started just a little over a decade later, uh, there, there are some interesting coincidences that end up occurring, and this pattern of war and taking advantage definitely continues. So, for example, following World War I, and uh, I guess as a side note, let's uh, step back here, because chronologically, technically what happened first was prior to World War I, the uh, main powers in the West divided up the Ottoman Empire, Uh, among themselves, the French, the British, the whatnots, and all of them divided up what territories and areas they would have. This was prior to World War I, and then World War I happened. This information came out after the Russian Revolution, and they found the, basically the rebels found these documents and just released them for everyone to see. And so that evidence was there. And so uh, with World War I, Once it did end, the land was then divided up officially. And the interesting note here would be that the Rothschilds were the only private group that were allocated land. And they were allotted land in, guess what? Palestine. And so, yes, it's that same area. The Golan Heights was later taken by Israel in 1967. And in that endeavor was when Israel actually bombed and uh, nearly destroyed the USS Liberty, which again was a United States military vessel that got attacked by our allies, Israel. And that is a whole nother rabbit trail to get in, but all about the Golan Heights area. Now in In 2018, Syria came in and took it from Israel. And so uh, Syria took it. Now there's a lot of fighting that's been going on for the past probably decade or more um, all around that area with these different groups. And that's kind of always been the case. But guess what? When I looked into who was operating on the Golan Heights, because it is a very mineral-rich and oil-rich area, Sure enough, there's this company called Genie Oil and Gas. It is a subsidiary of AFEC Oil and Gas. I think it's AFEC. It's A-F-E-K, so I would guess so. And they are operating currently in the Golan Heights. And yes, they are a Rothschild company. So that's interesting. Also, modern times, you've got the issue of uh, Hillary Clinton 
when Bill Clinton was president and Hillary was the first lady, they allowed the Rothschilds to come and honeymoon at the White House, which was interesting. Also, when a lot of Hillary Clinton's emails got leaked years down the road, she had lots of personal letters to one of the Rothschilds. And at the end, she would say things like, love you so much, XXXXX. And there's one time when she was apologizing for something. I don't know what the gaffe was, but she was apologizing and saying, I'm forever in your debt. Please just let me know whatever I need to do. I will do it. I am your servant. Let me know what I can do. And so she really is playing the submissive role, which for those of you that know, that is not really the role typically of Hillary Clinton or the Clintons in general, but they do play that role to the Rothschilds. Another connection would be Donald Trump. Before he was president, he went bankrupt over a hotel deal. And guess who stepped in to bail him out? It was the Rothschild Bank, which was being run by the man that Trump later brought into his cabinet when he became president. So yes, this is something that it's just behind the scenes in so many different ways. Going back to the idea of uh, Israel in that area, there was the Balfour Declaration, And that was what a lot of people point to as the beginning of Israel becoming an official nation after World War II. Now, what that Balfour Declaration was, it was actually a letter from Rothschild to Lord Milner. Now, if you remember the name Lord Milner, I did talk about him yesterday and possibly the day, the or sorry, last week in the previous episode, and possibly the episode before that. But he was one of the leading figures in the Rhodes Roundtable groups. So the Society of the Elect, Milner, was one of these top people that was very connected with Cecil Rhodes and that group. And so there's a letter from uh, the leading Rothschild. I forget their names as they go on through the generations, but the Rothschild of the day to Lord Milner. And then that letter was sent back from Lord Milner to Rothschild. And that uh, reply was the one that is labeled the Balfour Declaration. And in that, uh, it was promised that the that there would be a Zionist Jewish state. That would be the nation state of Israel. This was before there was any governmental official statements about the thing, but uh, governments don't have the same power as people like the Rothschilds and the Society of the Elect. So uh, that was the Israel thing. I uh, Well, I guess there's a little more. So you have this other uh, kind of side story, so many side stories, and there's so many more. I'm just trying to touch on the ones that kind of seem to be connected in ways. You have this U.S. attorney, John Loftus, and he interviewed a Mossad agent, and this was more recently, as in the past few decades. And uh, what he found out and the information he got was that that Mossad agent had been around prior to Israel becoming a state. And he had been sent with a few others to Nelson Rockefeller. And they went to his office and tried to blackmail him. They had proof and evidence that Rockefeller and a lot of his associates and other companies had funded the Nazis, which is 100% true. The West, the Western banks and corporations were the ones that uh, funded the rise of the Nazis. And so uh, they were going to leak this information And uh, this was their blackmail to get Rockefeller to push for the Jewish state actually becoming an official nation. There was a vote on this. And Rockefeller is reported to have said that uh, you will either prosecute the Nazi funding or you will get your state. Take your pick. 
he would not give them both. And so they picked the state, and they did not release any of the documentation and the information, which did later come out anyway, but uh, it didn't come out at the time, and therefore it's not in the mainstream history books. And so uh, with that, Rockefeller gave them all the Latin American votes for the state of Israel which is also interesting that Rockefeller controlled all of the Latin American votes for uh, that issue. Uh, yeah, lots of interesting things here. And yes, it's Rockefeller. And yes, all of this is tied to Israel becoming a state in the same area that the Rothschilds have been dealing in. And uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff going on there. So moving on from that, one of the most important people in my book that the Rothschilds funded, I would say it's a mix of Rockefeller and Cecil Rhodes, but Cecil Rhodes, I think, does take the place here, takes number one place. Cecil Rhodes was a very powerful, wealthy, and influential person of his day. The country Rhodesia, which was uh, was Rhodesia, now it is Zimbabwe and Zambia, uh, that is named after Cecil Rhodes. He's the one that uh, founded that and named that. He owned the De Beers Diamond Company, which was one of the most profitable and most wealthy companies in the entire world and has been for a very long time. He ran South Africa for a long time. He was the one that headed up, uh, probably started and ran and cleaned up after and profited from the Boer War in that area. And so he was, uh, again, very influential, very wealthy. And when he died, he, uh, well, I guess before he died, he wrote his last will and testaments. Uh, There were actually multiple um, accounts of these, and they were to be Uh, handed out and read and acted out by specific people. And those names are also connected with everything else, but I don't have time to get into all of them. So uh, with this, he did end up dying. His last will and testament was read and carried out. And what it did was it created the Society for the Elect and the Rhodes Scholarship. So the Society of the Elect, I did read some quotes about in last week's episode about what that was and what that did, but basically the general idea was that he believed that the Western English world, mainly being Britain and America, should be united, and they should run the rest of the world and help out all these savage races and savage countries. They should control them, they should run them, and the West is who should be dominant. The West being, again, Britain and the United States. And he set up a secret society that he modeled after the Jesuits, and it would have these roundtable groups and all these centers of power around the globe, especially around the West, which also is very reminiscent of the way they set up their banking houses. It's a very similar model in that regard. But then there would be rings within rings, is the way it was described, where there would be this inner group that would actually be the core group that would have been Rothschild, Milner, uh, Rockefeller... There are a few others. I forget the ones that were in that top notch. Uh, Those names are actually written down. Uh, Carol Quigley would be the resource for that with Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-Saxon Agenda, I believe it was. And so with that, there was this leading group. And then there was an outer group that was kind of a step down from them that would run kind of an area or region or whatever. They would think that they're the only group and they would not even really know that there is this inner circle that actually is above them. And it would go so on and so forth, rings within rings, that idea. And one of these roundtable groups would have been the group that turned into the, uh, what is it, the British... 
oh, I forget the name of it, the British something for international affairs, which is around today. Uh, That is something that came out of that. It's a Royal Institute for International Affairs. That's what it is. And then the Roundtable Group in America is what later uh, got renamed to the Council on Foreign Relations. Another interesting thing there and very influential group in the United States, probably the most influential when it comes to uh, foreign policy and that kind of thing. And so Cecil Rhodes, going back to Cecil Rhodes, that's who Cecil Rhodes was, and that's what he set up, and he got a lot of his original funding from, yes, the Rothschilds. These roundtable groups would overall discuss strategy and plans. They were very long-term in their thinking. They would take a Fabian strategy, where they would basically eat away at the edges, nudge things in the direction they want from the left and from the right, and kind of bounce back and forth, but always progressing as it goes towards their eventual overall goal. They decided they wanted to infiltrate government, finance, and media, and education was another one that was up there. And so these were the methods that they wanted to use. Now, groups that were connected to this, uh, like I mentioned, would be the main ones, the actual roundtable groups themselves that got renamed and are still around today, would be the Royal Institute for International Affairs in the UK and the Council on Foreign Relations in the US. And there were other kind of power center groups that are very, very connected to this as well. So, for example, the Trilateral Commission was started by David Rockefeller with some other names that were also tied in with the Society of the Elect, of course. And that is another rabbit hole to go down. Some would argue Trilateral Commission actually had more power than Council on Foreign Relations. Maybe the Council on Foreign Relations ended up getting watered down and the Trilateral Commission was possibly a uh, more... I guess, potent group at that point. There is the book Trilaterals Over Washington by Anthony Sutton, I believe. And I think that was co-written by, oh, I forget his name now, the guy that wrote Technocracy Rising, um, another one I would recommend. I'll find out what those are and put those in the show notes as well. But anyway, getting back to the point here, you had these groups going on, but you also have these other groups, like like I said, the Trilateral Commission, which is directly uh, related. You had the Federal Reserve, which again was directly related. You had a representative from the Rockefellers, representative from J.P. Morgan, a representative representative from the Rothschilds, and yes, same names: Rockefeller, Morgan, Rothschild, Chase Manhattan Bank. Yes, these are all the same connections, all the same people. This is Trilateral Commission. This is Council on Foreign Relations. This is the Federal Reserve. Uh, These same groups are said to be responsible for starting up the IMF and the World Bank. According to Carol Quigley, the IMF and the World Bank were set up in order to facilitate a more global control over the monetary systems around the world, the monetary systems of central banks. So that would be the deals that they set up these central banks and push for the central banks in all these different countries, uh, hence the Federal Reserve and others like it. And then all those central banks would be connected to Together through the World Bank and the IMF. It's like the central bank of the central banks. And you have the Bank the bank for International Settlements. And that was a, another one that was directly connected. And I believe Quigley said that that one specifically was the one with the most power and it's the most secretive one of the group, but also set up by all these same groups in order to do these same things. 
they were always pushing for a League of Nations of sorts, the League of Nations being one of those examples, but also NATO, the UN, these types of things. You have other that some people would think of as more social connections, but if you think about people of this magnitude, when do they get together to discuss strategy other than these conspiratorial meetings and such? Well, they actually do it kind of out in the open. You've got the Bilderberg Group. You've got uh, something like the Bohemian Grove. That would be another very good example. The beginning of Alex Jones was the Bohemian Grove and uncovering that one, which was also very interesting. And some of the stuff he uncovered was extremely interesting. I did an episode on that pretty dark, but it's at the end of the corruption and conspiracy episodes uh, that I did in season one. So, and I think that actually, I don't think that one's linked. I will not link that one because it does get a little graphic and it is bad. And that's the only episode that I could say is not safe for work in any way. And so I won't link that, but you can find that if you go back to season one and look at the end of that series on corruption and conspiracy, which I do have linked in the show notes. So anyway, those are groups. You got the Club of Rome. You've even got uh, ones that people wouldn't think of, like the World Wildlife Foundation. When you look at the founders, they were all eugenicists and big on overpopulation and population control. And a lot of these were names that then tied back to all these same names that we're talking about now, as, as is the case for all of these. Same with Club of Rome. Same with the Fabian Socialists. You could go to the Rockefeller Foundation, has a lot of these same ideas and ties. And yes, the list goes on and on and on. You've got the CIA, which goes back to OSS, which goes back to British intelligence, which of course goes back to this idea of the West being Britain and the US and who was running things behind the scenes. And yes, it just the rabbit holes never end. So you have all of these different groups. And yes, they do happen to have all of the same names and very similar foundings, very similar ideologies, and very similar controls behind them. You've got modern groups today that are working on similar models with similar ideologies with identical names behind most of them, or at least names that are directly connected to these same names. These groups running today would be groups like the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, um, Davos, and G20. I mentioned Bohemian Grove is still going on. A lot of those other ones I just mentioned prior are still in existence today. You have something like the Reese Committee investigation, where they actually investigated all these nonprofits and all these groups and found that they did have these views and did have these goals and did have all this influence. And yeah, guess what? Nothing happened. Kind of like Epstein, or I guess the customers of Epstein or the victims of Epstein, however you want to word that there, because yes, that was probably a honeypot operation, and probably Mossad and CIA, which yes, is the, those are both groups that I have talked about today. So moving on from these issues, those specific groups, that kind of thing, I did want to touch on just a few examples of corruption and conspiracy that have come out uh, I guess, over the course of time after these things happened. Of course, none of them came out at the time, or at least no one was listened to that was trying to out them. And the three that I was going to touch on would be Operation Northwoods, NATO, their Operation Gladio, 
and the coup in Ukraine. Those were the three that I thought would be pretty relevant for multiple reasons. The Just the name of the country Ukraine should definitely spark some interest there, but the others are important as well and do provide a little extra context as we move into the episode that I'll be doing next week. So let's start off with Operation Northwoods. And to me, this is a really good example of how the U.S. government is 100% willing and able to carry out purposeful acts of domestic terrorism and false flag operations, lie about it to the American people as an excuse to get into war. So I might talk about that actually happening next week, but as far as one that didn't happen but almost did, and we do have all the information from, Operation Northwoods would be it. So uh, to put you in the setting here, we've got the conflict between Cuba and the U.S. really going strong. A lot of people wanted the U.S. to go to war with Cuba, with Cuba, but I believe it was Kennedy that was president at the time was not interested. And so the way this worked out was that there was this operation called Operation Northwoods that was devised. It was a plan that was devised, a strategy, and it went all the way through the ranks. I believe it even touched on the Army, as well as the uh, CIA, as well as the Department of Defense, uh, through generals, all the way up to the president's desk. He was the very last person that had to sign off on it. And sure enough, he chose not to sign off on it. And that is the only reason this didn't happen. But it did make it through every other layer of government. And if it would have been another president, more than likely it probably would have happened. So with Operation Northwoods, they wanted an excuse to go to war with Cuba. And so their strategy was twofold. Number one, they would start carrying out acts of domestic terrorism in Florida around Orlando. They would do things like car bombs and riots and things of this nature, and that would spark enough unrest, enough outcry, enough animosity. And of course, all this would get blamed on Cuba and people that were Cuban sympathizers. And so that was one wing of the attack, which you can already see, like car bombs in the U.S., done by the U.S. government and then blamed on somebody else, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, Can you guess of times that might have happened uh, later in history in the same place by the same people? Yes. So uh, moving on, the second half of Operation Northwoods would be the excuse officially to go into war. And what they would do is take an American passenger jet with American passengers And uh, my understanding on how this would have been carried out is that they would leave the states, then they would land somewhere without that being disclosed, unload any of the passengers that are civilians, then instead of the plane flying up, they'd fly up some sort of drone or unmanned aircraft or something like that. But it would have the same transponder and that kind of thing. At the same time, I guess prior to this happening, they were going to make a Cuban fighter jet, a Cuban, I think it was a MiG or whatever it is, and it was going to have all the Cuban symbols on it and the colors and all that kind of stuff. And then what they were going to do is have the civilian aircraft, and I would put that in quotes because I think it's just a basically a drone, and it would be flying somewhere outside of Cuban airspace 
and it would be approached by this Cuban fighter jet that is actually not Cuban in any way, except it looks like it, but it's all U.S. And so what would happen is that the, uh, quote, passenger jet would radio in and say, uh, please, we have civilians on board. We don't want any trouble, blah, blah, blah. Please don't shoot. And then sure enough, guess what? The fighter jet would shoot, destroy the plane, and then that would go all over U.S. media, that would be the false flag that would then get us to send troops into Cuba because they destroyed a plane and killed people, and they were U.S. citizens. This should remind you a lot of the Lusitania, and I will probably touch on that tomorrow, or sorry, I keep saying tomorrow and yesterday. I will touch on that next week in the following episode. And so that is, to me, a really good example of the extent that the U.S. government will go to to push us into war, to get public support, to lie through the media, and to actually hurt civilians. I mean, luckily, they were going to offload the civilian people on the aircraft, but the car bombs and things like that, often that doesn't go in a way that does not hurt anybody. You could look at the the first bombings of the World Trade Center, and you had, I uh, forget names now, I haven't looked this up in quite a while, but uh, there was someone who was contracted to make a bomb, and uh, this was all done in league with the FBI. So the FBI, there, were the, uh, there was a handler who was with the FBI, and they had this agent um, that was involved in this plot. And basically, the way it all ended up working out was that they told this guy to make a bomb and then to drive it into the parking lot of the World Trade Center. And the guy was like, well, you know, we don't have to make a real bomb. Like, I can just make a fake bomb and it can have the same effect because, you know, y'all are going to bust me and it's going to be a big deal, whatever's going to happen. And uh, they wouldn't do that. So he actually got the handler on tape to uh, tell him and force him to make a real bomb and sure enough, he did. And sure enough, they actually did explode it. And that didn't go very well. And so that's that's a bit of an issue that is somewhat related. Uh, but moving on from the false flags, I guess, uh, US false flags, let's move to NATO false flags. So as the Soviets were moving out, NATO is stepping up. And they had an operation that came out later called Operation Gladio. Now, there was some investigation in Spain about a specific incident and uh, that led a judge, I believe it was, or a lawyer to uncover that, well, this one incident was actually part of something bigger and it was actually tied to NATO and it was uh, this operation. And then as this got investigated further and further, it turned out to be a pretty large scale deal. But what NATO was doing is they would have operatives that would get left behind in some of these regions that were kind of these border zones that had a little bit of disruption going on. They weren't very stable, these kinds of things. And NATO wanted all of these people to be on NATO's side and definitely not on the side of the Soviets and Russia. And so what NATO was doing was leaving these insurgents in place and having them perform domestic terrorism. And basically they would do things like car bombs, they would shoot people, they would commit robberies, these types of things. And uh, with this, the goal was that it would then turn the people to the state, to the nation to protect them. They would turn to the state for safety and can the state 
produce that on its own? Well, not really, but you have NATO right here. So as long as the state's friendly with NATO, oh yes, we will all be protected. And again, it's just to push people into that. But they were literally killing people over and over again in many different countries. I forget how many, but I believe it was over a dozen, if I remember right. It was quite a few, very large operation, and it is all declassified now. So it's not even a secret in any way. But uh, that was something that occurred that was not good. I read a quote from one of the guys that got arrested for doing a car bomb, and he was a part of Operation Gladiator. I read that quote last week, and he was specifically saying that reason that it was to push the civilian population to beg the state for more and more security, basically beg for more and more state and basically push them into the arms of NATO. So that's what was going on. Now, the next step... I guess maybe I should kind of set some context here in relation to what's going on today, at least as of my current recording. For all I know, when you're listening to this, maybe it's two years down the road and we've been through a nuclear World War III, or maybe nothing happened. Who knows? But uh, as of right now, while I am recording, uh, Russia has, uh, has some sort of military conflict in the Ukraine. That's kind of running hot, but it's unclear as to how far that's going to go, if other nations are going to step in, and if so, to what degree, all of this stuff. But it's really getting hit hard with propaganda from the media, all pro-Ukraine, all anti-Russia, and it's, it's hitting super hard, like to the point of like pushing fake videos of things and then claiming people are heroes and it ends up like that those people didn't even exist. That's happened multiple times already. And uh, this has only been going on for a few weeks, uh, I guess a little over a month, technically, as far as like actual fighting and stuff. But uh, with all of this, to set that context, uh, NATO, when the Soviets moved out, Uh, NATO made a deal with the Soviets that they would not take advantage of the withdrawal and enter these Eastern European countries. They would not have those countries uh, come in league with NATO and the UN. And that was a deal they made, and that was a deal that they definitely broke. NATO has then encroached uh, further and further into the territory of Russia or towards the territory of Russia. They've encroached into this buffer zone that Russia had between the Russia and NATO and the UN. And so this is something obviously that Russians not very fond of that the UN and the the um, and NATO did not keep their promises and that they're encroaching further and further and they not only have defensive but offensive positions that are there. So yes, understandably, Putin is not very happy about that. And this has been going on for quite a while. This is not a new thing. So if you go back to I believe it was 2014 under Obama, there was a coup that occurred in the Ukraine. So at the time, there was a democratically elected president who was friendly with Russia, and this was not something that the West really liked or wanted. And so what happened was that that person got overthrown, and in their place was installed somebody who was friendly with the West and not friendly with Russia. And this is something that... The I guess the big piece of evidence that came out about this came out right after this happened. It wasn't even something that came out a decade later, but it was uh, the recording of, I believe is the UN ambassador, the US ambassador, and uh, she was talking about this coup and when they would have it happen and who they would put in place and all this stuff. I, I think I did mention this 
in the episode last week. But um, that happened. And basically, the whole point being that the West did a coup in the Ukraine and got someone that was anti-Russia, but pro-NATO in charge. And when this happened, the there are two regions in the south of Ukraine that declared themselves independent and at war with the new Ukrainian regime. And so when they did this, there was a war, and there was fighting, and eventually there was a peace deal that was signed. With this peace deal, these territories were promised by the Ukrainian government that if they stay as a part of Ukraine and they cease this fighting, that Ukraine would give them autonomy to act as they see fit. They would give them independence. And so uh, this was signed off on and this peace treaty was done and accomplished. And yet there were multiple times the Ukrainian government continued to attack these regions. Not only that, they never gave their, them their autonomy and uh, to this day have never never even really put much of an effort towards making that happen in any way whatsoever. So again, 2014 and a few years after that, yeah, that's still almost a decade ago. And this is a an issue that has been going on for quite a while. These regions have asked Russia for help over and over again. Russia has always not wanted to get involved. But at this point, Russia decided that they will get involved. And uh, that is where we are currently. So currently, to bring you up to date, I have no clue when you're listening to this, but currently what has happened is that Russia has said that they recognize these areas in southern Ukraine as being independent, and Putin did send troops in and military vehicles in to Basically, he said it was a peacekeeping force, but it was basically to make sure that these areas would gain control officially of all the territory that they claimed was theirs. And so there was some of their territory that they claimed as part of their independent regions that they didn't control. The Ukrainian government still controlled. So Russia comes in, we bring, they bring in troops, and they push into Ukraine from these regions. They say they're defending the regions and establishing them as independent areas. And yes, there's many different reasons why, as I have mentioned. And so that's kind of where we are. But there is this question of, will Russia continue? Will they try to take all of Ukraine? Or will this stop here? And what's going to happen with the pipeline between Russia and Germany? And will any of the Western nations step in? Again, there's a lot of propaganda that's been going on. So This is something that is still up in the air, and I think I'm going to hold off until next week to talk more about it, because next week's episode will touch on some of these things, and I think it will be a better time to go into a little more detail as well as step back and look at it from a more macro view as well. So I think we have a lot of this information that we need, this background information, the context, a lot of the names, the groups, uh, quotes, and specific operations, all these kinds of things we have covered. So in the next episode, I'll talk about war and false flags. And if I were to jump straight into that with a normie that uh, didn't know these things, it would probably sound pretty crazy. But I would think that even a normie could have listened to the previous two episodes in this one and when they start listening to the following one, it will not sound so crazy. It will sound uh, like something that makes a lot of sense and more like history than conspiracy theory, because that's actually what it is. But we will do that next time. 
I will end this episode here and we will move on. So before that, I would like to say thank you to all of you. Thank you, especially to people that have been listening to the show for a long time. One of the most important ways and effective ways that you can support the show is to email me some feedback and give me your opinions on things, on things that I've covered, things you like, things you don't like. That feedback is extremely helpful and important. So thank you, those of you that have done so, but please continue to do so. And anyone who hasn't, please do. If you haven't left a rating or a review, that is very helpful as well. I do have some, but not a great many. So the more that there are, the better it is for the show and getting this information out there to people. Also, this is a free podcast that anybody can access, and I plan on leaving it that way and keeping it that way indefinitely. But that does mean that I have to pay for things myself, or it used to mean that. But now we have wonderful supporters of the show, listeners like you, who have chosen to give small amounts of monies in order to help me to uh, promote this show and produce this show. And so that's uh, currently what pays the bill, so to say. I don't have any other... um, income coming in. There's no extra that goes straight to me, but it's at least enough to cover the hosting and resource materials, that kind of thing. So thank you very much for those of you that are doing that. Anybody else that's willing to do that, it would be greatly appreciated as well. I know there are lots of economic issues that have come up through the pandemic and post-pandemic. Gas is the highest it's virtually ever been, it sounds like. And so people are hurting. So I totally understand if people are backing out in any way or or aren't able to support the show. But if you are able to, and you are willing to, I would really appreciate that, and it really would help. And there are perks for doing so as well. So you can look at the Patreon page or Subscribestar page, and those are all listed. And I encourage you to check that out. That's in the show notes. Another thing would be the website. There is a website that does have an outline for this show, a bio for me, all kinds of random information like that, resources, book titles, things of that nature. So that might be something you're interested in. I'm also on Twitter at Foundations PC and also on TikTok now, which, as I've said before, I don't recommend anybody download that whatsoever. But if you are unfortunate enough to already have a TikTok account, then please do find me on there. I believe it's just under our foundations, if I remember right. I'm sure you can figure it out. And uh, you can like me or follow me or do whatever the heck you do on Twitter on there. I'm just hoping that might be a way that I can uh, get a little more interest and get some of these things out there to people in a different format, reaching a different crowd, because we always want to be getting this information out there to people. Another side note that I would like to mention is that I went to the Rogue Food Conference in Florida this past weekend, and it was very encouraging. There were people there like Joel Salatin and John Moody. They were the ones that run this thing, and those should be big names that are big enough that most of my listeners will be familiar at least with one or the other. And a lot of the, well, I guess the main topic for the conference was all about creating alternative food systems. So it's it's the type of thing that I talk about on my show, but specifically oriented around food. Basically, the system is broken, food is poison, there is no real nutrition in it. And so uh, we want to eat more healthy, we want to eat real food and natural food. How do we do that? Well, the problem is that the food system is so highly regulated, that in many states, you can't even sell or buy raw milk. You can't just sell or buy meat directly. 
unless it's been through a specific process. There are many different food products that you're not allowed to buy or sell unless they've been made in a commercial kitchen that's licensed and been signed off on and certified and all this stuff. And so it's just a mess. It's a mess that most people can't break into unless you're of some sort of significant size. And even if you're still very small scale, it it just makes it more and more difficult, less and less profitable. And it's part of the reason why mega corporations run the world, because they use governments and use things like regulations and things like that to keep out their competition. Yes, that's the way it works. And so the Rogue Food Conference is all about how to get around this and create parallel structures. Uh, Joel Salatin actually used the term parallel universe. And he's talking about what I've talked about a lot, the parallel society, the parallel polis. There's many names for this idea. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the parallel universe. It sounded a little out there to me, but that's just me personally, maybe. And so it was all about building this parallel system oriented around food, which was super interesting. It was also encouraging to see that there are so many people. There are a few hundred people there. They were all very into this. Well, I guess overall, they were all like-minded. I would say that there's probably quite a few that are more constitutionalist, kind of um, status to some degree or another, and that's fine. It wasn't an anarchist conference or anything like that. But the the focus and the goal was how do we do this without dealing with all this crap, without dealing with all these uh, fees and regulations and these kinds of things. And so some strategies were things like PMAs and food co-ops and buy-in clubs. They talked about the legal issues and how to get around those things. And it was just super interesting. Lots of good content there. And uh, a business partner and I are going into business together to do something of this sort locally. And so it was really helpful to get a lot of this information and for us to be able to kind of hone in on what we're doing. So that's really cool. If anybody's interested specifically in those topics, please feel free to reach out. I might even do a show on these things at some point or write a little article and give it to subscribers. I don't know, something like that. So uh, do reach out if that's something that you are interested in. Also, if you're a supporter, uh, I haven't done this in a while. I've got a book that I've been writing for like two years and I've released a few sections of that to the people on Patreon and Subscribestar. I, I will release the next um, section on there sometime in the next few days, maybe when this releases sometime around then. So if you are someone that supports the show financially, be on the lookout for that if that's something you're interested in as well. So that is all that I have. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all your support. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.